Welcome back to Absurdity, where we discuss all things absurd in religion, culture, and society. And today, I do have another solo episode for you, but I also have some interviews lined up that I am working out and getting all the details together for, but I'm glad you're here. And I'm excited about the future uh, in this year, because I have been doing some some dreaming and planning, and I'm not going to say anything more than that right now because I don't want to make another promise that I can't keep. But for now, uh, just know that I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forgotten what I'm doing here. Um, it has been a wild ride so far in 2021, and I don't know who told and gave permission to 2020 uh, to say that they could 2020 could just keep going. But I would prefer whoever told them that to, uh, or told 2020 that to tell them to stop now. Because I I want off this wild ride. But I do have good news, which is thanks to a friend of mine who works at an assisted living facility. Um, just this past Wednesday, I got the second dose of the COVID vaccine. And so very excited about that. For the last couple of days, I've been dealing with the side effects. Uh, for the second dose, I have the Moderna one, which means I'm 94.1% protected after two weeks or two weeks from the date of the second injection. So no microchip yet, but I don't think the government needs one because we all carry one willingly in our pockets that tells them exactly where we are. It's actually really funny that that the whole capital insurrection crowd talking about or, or QAnon people talking about uh, microchips and vaccines or uh, ways for the government to track you or control you and they don't really need to. Because that whole capital insurrection crowd was then arrested via cell phone location data that they willingly provided by owning and using cell phones that were easily trackable. Um, there was actually a really, really uh, eye-opening GIF that was put up on Reddit just a couple weeks ago that demonstrated that the, the protesters at the rally were the same ones that entered and, and stormed the Capitol a few minutes later. And you can actually watch the gif of basically a whole mass of cell phone uh, dots showing up over where the rally was. And then you see them quickly march over to the Capitol and kind of just you see a whole bunch of bustling there. And so, yeah, it is. it was really, really eye-opening and telling to see that and to, um, and to, to watch the claims that it wasn't the same crowd. It wasn't the same crowd being completely disproven. But I think uh, in the wake of everything happening in 2021 20, so far, uh, I think many of us are still stuck in the same position that many of us were stuck in last year, which is that many of us or most of us are unable to or seemingly unable to reach across the aisle and actually have a conversation. And it seems like every single conversation that we try to have just goes downhill very quickly. It either devolves into a debate, um, usually it's done on Facebook, and then it's just two sides shouting at each other, basically, or typing really long comments at each other, and there's really no progress being made. There's nothing that is very redeeming about the entire process and experience. And there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, because you're basically arguing on a on a public forum if you're on social media you have uh your own kind of you have you have to save face if you're wrong and so there is incentive there there's far greater incentive more so than even being right 
there is more incentive to not be wrong. Because if you're wrong, now that's embarrassing. And where in a regular one-on-one conversation, being wrong doesn't have to be as big of a deal, in public, that's a lot harder, especially if you were very fervently making your points. Pride, I would say, doesn't just go before the fall, but it accompanies it. And when we are wrong about something, uh, it is very, very, and when we realize that we're wrong, we often still lash out because we don't want to be wrong. And if we can somehow discredit the other person or uh, make them seem worse, then we will then we will save face, we will walk away with some dignity, but unfortunately what happens instead is we don't save face, we make ourselves look worse, we are obvious, or we, we, we show our hand that we are wrong, and no one is made better for it. That's usually what happens when we are wrong. And if someone else is wrong, the person that I'm arguing with, if, if they're wrong, then the same thing from their end. And so because of that, because of that fact, uh, the 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 public pressure of being right, I would say that that prevents most social media conversations uh, from being fruitful. I would say that's one thing. Uh, number two, I would say the second thing, and and I've I've talked about this a lot on this podcast before. We did an interview back uh, back when we were in season two because we did seasons way back when, uh, well over a hundred episodes ago. We had Anthony Bosman on to talk about arguing and debating well. And one of the things that, that he shared was that, that a debate is two people arriving at truth together, not two people or one person having the truth educating the other person. And unfortunately, I think most of our conversations online actually turn into two people thinking they have the truth and they need to educate the other person. So instead of it being a journey for both people, rather both of them believe that there's no further they need to go on their own journey, but rather in at least in that moment and the other person needs to basically catch up to speed. They need to they need to fix. They they have their journey to take and they need to get to where I am on this point. So I think that's that's number 2 because you're you're starting from from completely it's not even just two or, or opposite premises, it's it's that you're starting from the position that you believe your opponent or your, and th- that's another thing there, the, the idea that you would see them as an opponent, but, but that you see the other person as wrong from the get-go and that there is no merit in anything they have to say because of either something they've said before or some conception you have about them, some perception that you have about them, whether that's they're racist uh, or sexist or uh, a man or um, a transphobe or a homophobe, anything like that. Um, by the way, when I say a man and, and the same goes for women, um, that's sexist, that's mansplaining, that's all of the, all of those things kind of tie in there. And that's where we start to, uh, stereotype people. That's where we start to just assume that they're wrong and nothing they say has any value because I've already been able to pin this specific label on them. That's what happens with our online conversations. And so the, the question becomes, if, if this is the case, and all of our conversations, we're having less in person, I would say, right now. But uh, if all of our conversations are like this, then how in the world can we begin to solve problems like QAnon when there are so many people operating on conspiracy theories and who refuse to accept any evidence to the contrary? What can we do when one side is so obviously wrong and 
uh, they won't listen. And, and when we try to refute things with facts, well, they've already determined that those facts don't actually, they're unreliable facts. They're, they're a manipulated version of events. It, it's frustrating because the very fact checkers, fact checkers, the very organizations that could prove something wrong, um, because they're the organization that's accused or because they're, they're labeled as part of the conspiracy, right? And so, of course, the organizations that, that they're discrediting uh, would, would have it in their best interest to convince you that they're telling the truth or that they're not a part of the conspiracy. So there's no way to actually prove to these individuals that follow a cult-like mentality or that follow something like QAnon uh, that reality is different, or at least so it seems. So what I want to do now is actually dive into that question, and I, wanna, I want to explore the idea of the conversation of how we have some of those conversations. And, and hopefully, for listeners, uh, I hope that this is something that can serve as some sort of a, not a guidepost, but some sort of a, of a, of a checkpoint for introspection uh, that you, or a starting place for introspection. That's, that's probably the best, better way to say it. Uh, but a, a starting place for introspection that will, that will carry you into future conversations. Because in order to have some of these conversations, there's a lot of inner work that needs to happen. A lot of us see a, many of the problems that, that we're all dealing with, and we think, well, I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do. I feel like I need to do something. And I believe that there is a need for us to do something about it. I mean, you look at someone like Daryl Davis, who I have uh, repeatedly mentioned on this show because he's one of my heroes for this, but he's he, as a black man, has been able to basically uh, completely rehabilitate or, or convert uh, over 200 members of the KKK. He has been able to, like, basically uneducate or, like, like take away their, uh, or get them to change their minds and, um, and renounce their membership. Whole nine yards, as a black man, starting from the place. Like, he started at an adversarial place because they already had a belief about who he was the quality of his character, and that he was lesser, and that he was a threat to their whiteness. And yet he's been able to convince over 200 members of the KKK to walk away. How do you even begin that? And that's where I want to uh, start today. And I think first, I think first, I'm going to actually point to a flaw in the question. Now, I know I'm the one that asked it, but I think there are a lot of us that are asking a similar version of that question or some version of that question. And so I, I'm actually going to criticize the question itself. I don't think it's a bad question necessarily, but I, I think the question is actually uh, pretty reductionist and gives us a false starting point. So the how do we begin to solve problems or how do we solve problems like QAnon? How do I, how do I convince my QAnon uncle or, or friend or whatever uh, that they're following something that's false? And, and by the way, insert, you know, you can replace QAnon with insert whatever conspiracy-based mentality or dangerous mentality, racism, sexism, whatever. How do you begin to undo that with them? And it's a question based on results, not based on care for a person. Now, it might be based out of care for the people that are, that are a victim of that kind of mentality. But it's not based out of care for the actual person whose mind you are trying to change. Not typically. Uh, it's done because... For many of us, at least on a societal scale, this is more about like doing away with, with these mentalities as a whole. 
so that society can be better, so that we don't have to deal with this stuff anymore, that it's, it's ridiculous that we have to deal with this stuff. And so for many of us, it's result-based. It's a, it's a, it's, the question is born out of a desire for results. We want them to, we want these mentalities and these, these conspiracy theories to end. And so we see the belief as the problem. And this makes us inherently antagonistic toward the person, not just their positions and concerns. And this typically results in uh, starting every conversation with a, a giant canyon or a giant chasm between both parties. And so I want to I flip the question. And the, the way that I want to flip the question or the way I'm going to get there is by explaining to you the way I think we should regard, uh, the way I think we should regard people in these positions and, and, and that are holding these views. Now, yes, you could see it as a victim if, if, that, if that helps allay some anger, but I, I, I don't want to say a victim of these cult-like mentalities or a victim of, of falling prey to conspiracy theories because, and here's why, I think that any victimhood happened prior to them joining a conspiracy-minded you know, group or a, a hateful group or whatever, a hateful mindset. In other words, anything that would have victimized them that l- would lead them into, a, into a identifying with a group that is inherently dangerous and problematic, that already happened. They're not the victim of the group. They're a victim of something else, and the group became a solution for them. So what do I mean by that? If you've ever heard the, the podcast Caliphate, it was, uh, an, I think it was an NPR podcast um, several years ago, and it was all about how the, or episode two of it was all about how the, uh, how about ISIS recruits members. And they actually found someone who was ex-ISIS, he was a Canadian citizen, and they got him, they got him willing to interview. And um, this was kind of journeying into ISIS and, and the story of ISIS and yeah, part two was focusing on on the recruitment process. And it's actually pretty scary if you're a religious person because the the process of of recruiting into ISIS sounds eerily similar to general evangelism if you're in the Christian church. Uh, so I would highly recommend that because that will uh, sober us a little bit to our traditional methods and models of evangelism, or at least understanding the impacts of, of that model. But the guy who was uh, interviewed that was a Canadian-born citizen and uh, but found ISIS online. The path that he shares for his conversion into and his willingness to accept it was that he found a community that that accepted him, that welcomed him in, and that loved him. And it was over a you know over a long or a, a, you know a long time, essentially a long period of time, that slowly but surely more of the more of the more dangerous beliefs started to eke out. However. When you're already having, when you've already built on a foundation of that love, acceptance, that em, that embracing of someone, especially someone who has felt rejection and who has had trouble finding friends, who has trouble uh, finding people that can relate with the concerns that they have, and that's a key point that I hope can I hopefully I will remember to bring up later. When you like someone, or when you like this group, or when you have that sense of belonging and you don't want to lose it you suddenly become a lot more willing to accept more radical things over time it's just it's a it's a it, it is the idea of the slippery slope but not the same way because it's not that you accept this and that leads into this next thing it's more i would say sunken cost 
where you buy into one thing, then you buy into another, then you buy into another. And at this point, you're already, you've already bought into these other things because you want to believe and you want to be accepted and continue to be accepted and welcomed and embraced by this group that it just becomes sunken cost. You can't go back now. There's no turning back now because you are happier now with this group than you ever have been before. Your family doesn't get your concerns. Your friends don't get the concerns that you're sharing. Or um, your friends seem to have bought into this, this huge movement that is destructive or dangerous or that they perceive as dangerous. And um, and so you, you go to this group because this group hears you. This group listens to you. This group identifies. And it's not necessarily an echo chamber, but rather it is a it is a it is a chamber that makes you feel less alone. It's not that you're going to hear your concerns reinforced. It's that you're going in order to feel like you're not the only one. This is why I say the victimization happens prior to them joining the group. Because something had to happen, whether it was people didn't listen to their concerns, whether it was they faced rejection from romantic interests and they 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 struggle with rejection and processing their own grief whether it was loss in their family whatever whatever other circumstances may have happened for many those are what lead people to be willing to join a group that is uh, that is espousing dangerous ideologies and dangerous beliefs bottom line no don't get me wrong okay there are some people who quote, rationally come to those conclusions and quote, rationally, what I mean is like there's, there, there's no, there's no big emotional basis in it other than uh, they may be naturally suspicious people. And if they're naturally suspicious people, you've also got that feedback loop of the dopamine rush, this, the, 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 the emotional high of feeling right, the superiority that you start to feel because for a lot of these conspiracy theories, it's also a way to stick it to the man. It's a way of seeing through this plot. Uh, it's a way of sticking it to the man that that says, yeah, I can see through what you're doing. I know you're a terrible person. And it kind of helps ease some of that 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 feeling of disparity that we have and, and inequality that we have between uh, regular kind of citizens and either the rich or or powerful or rich and powerful, right? So I think there are some people that 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 do fall into that that category too. But I think the the bottom line is. We can't go into these these conversations with friends, with family, with whomever, starting from the position that that person is inherently wrong. Now, we can know that they're wrong before we start, but the way that we interact with them doesn't need to start with, you're wrong. In what world has someone walked up to you and said, you're wrong, and you went, oh, okay, cool. Like that's how they started the conversation and you were suddenly open. You weren't defensive at all about that when someone accused you of something or t- someone told you that you were wrong. Because I know that's not me. Me, my first instinct is to be defensive, even if it's over a situation that's already been resolved and someone brings it up. I always feel this, this kind of continual need to defend myself. But I don't think that that's how we should be approaching these conversations. I think that starting from the place that someone is wrong is always going to lead us into condescending attitudes and viewpoints, but it's also going to shut off any attempt or or shut off any possibility to actually listen to the person that we are talking to. And eventually, we may end up even stopping seeing them as, 
actual people, and we may only see them for the problematic views or beliefs or perspectives that they hold. And that's also a problem, because if we stop seeing them as people, we will never actually get to the root of where their sense of belonging and acceptance comes from within these groups that they now belong to, right? We already talked about this, but many people will lower their guard slowly and they'll lower their walls over time for a group or for a person that has accepted them when others wouldn't or that has validated feelings that they've had when no one else in their lives would. We talked about this with, with, with the reference to the Caliphate podcast. But the bottom line is, like, it's not that feelings, we have to agree with, with someone's feelings if they're feeling uneasy about government or they're feeling uneasy about Bill Gates or coronavirus or whatever, right? It, it's, not that we have to, it's not that we have to validate them as far as agreeing with them and actually affirming those feelings uh, in, in support of them. But rather, I think it's important for us to validate and by acknowledging feelings. So we're not saying that those feelings are correct in the sense of you are on the right path, but rather any hunches, any suspicions that they have. Instead, what we're doing is, is entering those feelings and saying, hey, look, I get that you feel suspicious. I get that you feel anxious. I get that you are scared or worried. We can then redirect those feelings in a more positive direction because we've accepted the person and not just rejected their feelings. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I think there are some people that, once again, no matter what you do, they, they still will go down that path. But the bottom line is a lot of us are spending all of our time arguing people, whether it's on the internet, whether it's in podcasts or radio, TV, whatever, we're arguing with people. And the more public we do it, the more incentive there is to double down instead of actually coming out of a false belief when it's proven wrong. But also what we're doing is we are showing ourselves as adversarial to their position in a way that also says that if you come to our side and if you do change your mind, congratulations for you, but also we still have resentment towards you or we still have bitterness towards you and we show them an attitude that basically demonstrates that they will find no acceptance with us. And see, it's one thing to be right, but it's an entirely different thing to be right in the wrong way. And if you are right, but you're a jerk about it, then who wants to agree with you, even if you are right? There are math teachers, there are, there are English teachers, there are science teachers that I argued with in school all the time because I didn't like them. It didn't matter what they taught, I didn't like them. So I didn't want to accept anything that they said, even if they were right. Instead, I would get defensive. Now granted, those teachers did nothing wrong in, in these cases, but, but if someone doesn't like you, they have no incentive to agree with you or join your side. And I think this is the biggest issue with the way that we are approaching a lot of the conversations we have about controversial topics, about cult-like mentalities, about, you know, QAnon, Democrats and Republicans, uh, evangelicals uh, versus um, non-mainline denominations, whatever, you name it, right? Um, I think the biggest issue is that in the process of trying to change the minds of, of the people that we disagree with, we are also providing them no safe alternative to join. Because when someone is stooped in 
all of these mindsets when they've bought in for so long, there is real emotional, mental, emotional and mental trauma that is associated with understanding and accepting that you were wrong or that you were misled by the people that you were, uh, that you trusted, that accepted you, that loved you. And the only alternative now, if all of those people are wrong, is for you to leave the group and go back to the way things were, which is nowhere to direct your, having nowhere to direct your anger, your frustrations, your pain, your confusion, your fear. There's nowhere to direct it. And this is why I find this whole thing so troubling, because from the Christian perspective, the gospel is the alternative that that we would provide to someone when when encouraging a friend or a family to or a family member to come out of sin or or, or to walk away from a, a dangerous or a unhealthy or whatever lifestyle that that they have. We always offer the gospel. It's not just stop drinking, it's stop drinking and do this instead. We are uh, in, in a sense, we're replacing a bad habit or bad decisions or bad or faulty worldviews with one that we believe is better. After all, you wouldn't try to convince someone to join something if you didn't think it was better than what they offer. So if someone who is a part of Q and, you know, who's, who's a QAnon follower or someone in a cult-like mentality in general or just someone you disagree with about something, if they have this narrative in their minds that people on your side of the fence are evil, are wrong, and they have that because there are people on your side of the fence that have acted that way, then you have the opportunity to rewrite that narrative. When Jesus was giving the story of the Good Samaritan and, he, and when the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus was challenging their perceptions uh, and, uh, of Samaritans and their own xenophobia and prejudice they had toward other people. The insulting thing wasn't that they would have to go out of the, their way to help someone in need. The offense of the good Samaritan is that the Samaritan was good, and they didn't believe Samaritans could be good. And for Jesus to then tell them to be like the person that they believed was lesser than them, wasn't better, or, or you know, was, was worse than them and could never be good, that was offensive to them, to those who were listening to Jesus tell the story of the good Samaritan. So you and I, in these conversations, have the opportunity to actually be a more positive representation of the side that, whatever side that we tend to belong to, whatever position we hold. We are representatives of that side. And if we act respectfully and we remember that there's a human being on the other side of this conversation, whether it's in person, digital, or you know, over audio or video call, whatever it may be, uh, the conversation tends to go a lot further, especially since many of us wouldn't say half of what we say online if we were in person. I would actually say more than half. So before we enter any conversation with someone, I think the, the first thing that we should ask ourselves is, what is the alternative that I am offering them? Because for them to leave their worldview, for them to leave their perspective, if, I'm, if, if for some reason we are able to get to that point, they will have to leave their group. They'll have to leave all of the message boards, the home, the hours. They'll have to, the hours they've poured in to this. There's, there's a real sunken cost fallacy there uh, th that exists for a lot of people in these positions. We have to give them something. If we are trying to bring someone out of one thing, we have to give them something else to join. We have to let them know that it is safe 
to leave the place that they currently are. Because if they do not believe that it is safe to do so, then they will always choose what may be something that deep down they know is wrong as long as they are feeling safe in that place. That's how we all do it. That's how, that's how escapism happens with a, lot of our, with a lot of addictions. In general, we are more comfortable. We know what we're doing is wrong, but we're more comfortable. We, are, we feel safe. It is familiar. And that is, that's actually why a lot, of, um, a lot of spouses or people in abusive relationships won't leave their abuser. It's because at least with the abuse, they can predict it. They know it. They, it's familiar to them. But for them to leave that with no, you know, potentially no home, nowhere to go, no one, you know, they may not know what resources are available to them. That's a great big unknown. And to them, that is a bigger risk than staying in the relationship where things are, relatively speaking, predictable and not comfortable in the sense of, I like this, but comfortable in the sense of because it's predictable, I can at least emotionally or mentally prepare for what's about to happen. I can brace myself, but I can't brace myself for things that I don't know, right? So they'll stay in that relationship. Likewise, if we do not let people know that it is safe to leave the place that they are and we do not show them the place that they are going to, if we cannot paint that picture for them and we can't treat them with respect, then why in the world would they ever want to leave their position, and the place that they find belonging and meaning in. Now, admittedly, I actually struggle with this because I haven't yet figured out the best way to offer that alternative. Because there are a lot of, quote, safe spaces on on both sides of a lot of these conversations where it's really meant to ridicule the other side. Which means that I think many of us need to do more work within our own groups to treat other people with respect, to speak respectfully of the other side and, and to let them know that, to show them that there is a safe place for them. Whether that is we form new groups and allow those groups to, to be what, what someone can come in and enter into or that is separate from the mainstream version of, of, of whatever group you belong to. I, I don't really know what the, the, what the full solution is there, but I'm hoping that this conversation can get some, some of your minds churning alongside mine. Because if we do not offer any alternative to the viewpoints and the, the group that they belong to, then where would they go if they change their mind? All they'll be left with is a bunch of emotional trauma and damage. And it's not that the, that the emotional trauma and damage is our fault. We're maybe just the ones that uncovered it. At the end of the day, we've left them nowhere to go and we've abandoned them. And that is where our problem comes. And this is why I think it's kind of fruitless to get into arguments with complete strangers because you'll never offer them an alternative because you don't care about them more than in that singular moment. Once, that, once you leave the Facebook conversation, once you leave the, the Twitter thread, you're done. You're never going to talk to that person again unless they show up in another thread. So we want to undo all of their, all of their brainwashing, so to speak, or we want to undo all of their all of their ways of thinking, and then we just want to leave them there. Which shows me that we care much more often, or often we care much more about being right than we do about actually changing someone's mind or giving them a better way forward. Even if we truly believe that our way is the better way forward. So I think we do need to be a lot more invested in creating realistic alternatives for people to jump to and, and, and move into as they leave their old ways of thinking. 
And that starts by accepting and embracing and loving someone. And then through that process, gently showing them what the better way is. Because I think the other side of this is that you can't just tell them the better way. You actually have to show them the better way. Because when you do, you might show them, wait, I can feel this way or I can act, I, I, I can have these feelings or I can have these fears or doubts or whatever, but I can still belong here. The amount of Christians that I've talked to that have one foot out the door and uh, to faith, they, they want out, they don't want any part of it anymore. Um, they think that that's the only route for them. And then when I talk to a Christian who's in a place of doubt, who's in a place of anger or frustration with the church, literally that's why I started Absurdity was to, was to reach that group, was to speak with people who have, their, who have one foot out the door and tell them, hey, it's okay to be angry and to doubt and to be frustrated and to be confused and to be worried and to still be a Christian. Because people often don't know that it's safe to exist in their space with the current feelings that they have. And it's not enough to tell them, but rather, this is why I express a lot of my own frustrations. This is why Tony would express a lot of his frustrations. That's why we would, we would talk about some of these terrible things that you think, well, you guys need to speak more positively about the church, or you need to speak more positively about X, Y, or Z topic. And our feeling is there are people who really do not, who, who feel strongly about these topics, who do not think they can still identify as a Christian or, or think that they don't belong as a Christian. And we want to show them that they do and that those feelings are real. And what they're seeing, they're not crazy for seeing. And it has made a real impact on a lot of people, that method. And so I, I think it's actually a, I think it's a solid method. The question is, how do you translate that into other mediums and to other platforms and into other topics and kind of, you know, we're, you know perspective arguments and worldviews? And I think that's for each of us to figure out as we go, because ultimately we are the only ones that know our context. I don't think there's any solution that I could offer here that would actually be helpful to you any more so than the actual principle that I'm talking about here. And I think, and I want to give you one, one specific thing, though, that you can do, once again, a principle, but one that when applied effectively, I think really does make a huge difference, is how we can listen better or how we can argue better. And I think the way that we can argue better or debate better or converse better is simply this. Have you ever seen on Facebook comments, long Facebook comments where people are reading through or, you're, you're, or maybe you're, you're, you've participated and you've done this. Someone types some really long comment, you see one thing that's wrong and then you only focus on that almost forgetting about the rest of their comment. Almost or using that one thing that they're wrong about demonstrably to then disprove or dismiss the rest of their argument. What many of us are doing are looking for chips in the wall so that we can knock the entire wall down. All that does is leave someone feeling vulnerable. And when someone feels vulnerable and exposed, they will often double down and lash out. They won't be willing to actually have a conversation further. This is where the personal insults and attacks come. When they're out of arguments and they're feeling exposed, then they result to telling you that even if you're right, I don't want to agree with you because you're just a jerk. Like, I see your points, but I don't, I don't want any part of it because of why would I want to believe that if, the, if other people that believe it are so vitriolic or so hateful or so spiteful and only seem to care about being right more so than anything else? Even if all of those things are actually true about the person saying them, they may still believe that. 
So I want to flip this on its head, and instead, I would challenge each of us, and and this is something that I've been trying to do for a long time, to say, like, look for look for the bricks in the wall to affirm for their strength. Because this is the first step to validating feelings. Look for the bricks, the foundations, or look for the look for the little points that you can actually affirm and say, hey, you know what? I agree with you. I do think the deficit is bad. Or, hey, I agree with you. And, you know, I think that's a really well-reasoned point. You know, I, you've really given me something to consider there. It's not a, a sign of weakness to affirm and properly respect your, quote, opponent or friend or family member. Rather, it's a sign of strength to know that you, and it shows to the third party, if you're doing this in a public setting, it shows to the third party that you're, or that is a neutral observer, that you're willing to extend an olive branch, that you're willing to actually have a conversation and not just talk at the other person. And so if the other person doesn't respond to that well, they show themselves to be the vitriolic and hateful and spiteful person. They bury themselves and the neutral observer who doesn't have skin in the game and whose mind can be changed or whose heart can be changed. They're the person who will not just pay attention to the points that each of you are making, but they'll pay attention to the way that you are making them. And it's very often that the person who treats someone else, the person who is kinder, more respectful, well-reasoned, all of those tend to be, tend to be intertwined in this, in this point. But I think the person who is kinder and, and more respectful, that's the person people want to agree with. And I think that by affirming a conversational point or an argument that they're making, I think that's where you have the opportunity to pivot into showing them what the better alternative is. To say, hey, I agree with you about the deficit. I think that you're right to be concerned about it. I think that you, your, your anxiety about it, your fear about it, whatever, is correct. I, like, I think that, that like, I want to affirm that it's okay to feel that way and, and, and that I see this. And so in answering that, I think a better way to address the fears that you have about this or the concerns that you have about this is I actually think that this other way is the better way to do it. What do you think? And then let them talk, talk back to you. And, and, and it changes from a conversation to a perspective, or uh, uh, to, uh, from an argument to a conversation. That's what it changes to. Because you, you've shared your perspective, you've, affir- you've affirmed them, you've shared your own perspective, and then you've asked for their opinion because you genuinely want it. It's not an argument anymore. Arguments is people taking turns making their points, but they never ask for a response. Or if they do ask for a response, it's because they're asking a question to challenge them. What about this? Or what about that? Or how do you deal with this? And how do you deal with this can be in, in, the, right, in the right setting. I think that can be a, a excellent question to ask in this, in this context. But I do think that the being willing to ask, hey, I would love to hear your opinion here. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? And being willing to listen to them. Because showing them that you accept them, that you don't hate them for their views, that you don't have any issue with their views, all of that comes together in a beautiful way that has led me to, for most of my Facebook arguments and conversations that I used to get in, I don't get into them anymore, mainly because I just don't have time to, to commit to writing comments after comments. Uh, there, there are times where I have typed out a long comment in response to someone and then thought, do I have the, do I have the energy to do this again when they inevitably respond? No, I don't think I do. But when I do that, most of my conversations will inevitably then turn to uh, a private message because that person wants to follow up more. And it may not be that I've changed their mind, but at the very least, they know that someone 
who believes differently than them on whatever topic respects them enough to have the conversation, to have it respectfully, and sees what they're feeling and understands it and acknowledges it. In other words, their entire person isn't being completely dismissed because I disagree with them. And so I hope that's something that is helpful to you as you are engaging in conversations around the dinner table or over Facebook or text message or, you know, wherever you're engaging in these conversations. I just say, like, do your best to keep them a conversation or to change them back into a conversation. Because I think conversations are where powerful transformation can happen because of how we affirm and value one another. And I think it's fair in those moments where you are affirming them and calling them out or and, and calling them uh, to to share their own perspective with you, it's fair for you over time to point out the fact that maybe they haven't been doing the same. And that if you want to continue this conversation, uh, if they want to continue this conversation, you know, I, you would ask the same, um, you would ask the same of them. In fact, that actually worked for me once in a conversation because um, I was able to share after a while, I was like, look, man, uh, I've acknowledged that you were right in these several points. And I've, I've affirmed them. I think that you were right for thinking them. And, and I agree with the concerns that you have. But I also laid out factual evidence-based arguments with sources that I can easily provide to you on request. And you haven't even remotely acknowledged them. Which shows me that you aren't willing to have this conversation in good faith. So until you are, I am going to, I'll be right here waiting and sitting, but I'm going to go about my day and I'm not going to spend more time here since you aren't willing to argue or, or at least have a conversation in good faith. And I remember that specifically because the person reached out to me uh, over a private message right after that and said, Hey man, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, help me understand your position. I do want to learn. I do want to understand more. And, and, um, and then he started with a question and we, we launched into a conversation from there. And I think that is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. So I, I hope that this really does give you a starting point for some of these conversations. I think arguing well comes with affirming someone else. And instead of starting from the place that they are wrong, start from the place of this is a human being that I respect, that has equal value to me, and that this is someone who I need to remember needs a sense of belonging, needs to feel a sense of, of affirmation and satisfaction and contentment, but also has real fears, concerns, and doubts that need to be addressed. And it's not that those things need to be addressed in the way of being told that they're wrong, but rather that those things need to be addressed because they're actually feeling them. And even if their doubt is misdirected, it's still doubt, right? If I fear the government taking away something from you know, my income, not only is it me being afraid of losing you know, the hard-earned money that, that, I, that I've worked to earn, but it's also hampering my ability to provide for myself or my family and cover my bills. And I think when it comes to providing for family or, or, or covering bills, I think that's where that conversation can then be turned to because their concern for, prov per, their, their concern for provision is a real and genuine and authentic and I think a well-founded concern. If they have concern about like tax increase or if they have concern about government taking away certain income for whatever reason, they have every right to be concerned for anything that they're feeling. And I think under, understanding the root behind the doubts and the concerns that they have can be really helpful. So ask questions. Understand, you know, seek to understand their perspective and look for what you can affirm from their experience because I believe that that is going to be the best starting place for the conversation that will follow. 
And I believe, and this is the last point I'll make as, uh, as we kind of close out this episode, I believe that the most important thing that you are doing when you are arguing in any sort of public fashion, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a, a Facebook comment or thread or a Twitter thread or whatever, you are not arguing always to change the mind of the person that you are arguing with, but rather you are arguing to change the mind or at least to, uh, to encourage the neutral observer. I remember several years ago, there was someone who, um, he's a friend of mine now actually, but um, he had posted a really long Facebook post one day. This was when I was in college about uh, basically attacking worship music, contemporary Christian music, um, and, you know, really, really going off on, on basic quote, worldly music. And he talked about how he had put away Blink-182 and all of his old, his old Green Day and all of his old albums and realized that those weren't for him anymore. And I entered that conversation because we had several mutual friends that do value worship music, who have had powerful experiences with God that have brought them closer to God through uh, worship music and uh, especially contemporary music. And there are other people who've who've said, "Hey, yeah, you may have been, you may have felt led away from God by listening to you know X, Y, or Z genre, but that's not the case for us. This may be your problem, but your problem is not our problem." Your problem is your problem. And so I entered that conversation and I, and I got into a, a lengthy uh, comment battle with him because I knew that I wasn't going to change his mind. He was, he was very, very straightforward. But I wanted other people to know and see the counter arguments to his points. And sure enough, messages started coming in that same day and came in for about two weeks after that. And then, you know, the internet cycle as it, as it is, uh, that post disappeared into history and no one sees it anymore. Uh, but during those two weeks, there were people that messaged me over and over and over again saying, thank you for doing that. Um, you know, he really made me rethink and, and doubt what I was, what I, you know, my own experiences. And, and I was worried that, that I, um, I was worried about whatever. And your points reminded me that my experience was real and my, my experiences mattered and that my perspective isn't necessarily a wrong one to have. So I was arguing not to change someone else's mind, but I was arguing to support the neutral observers, the people who would read but never comment, who would like but never comment, or who would never like e either. Those are the people whose minds I wanted to speak to, whose hearts I wanted to speak to. And the conversation and argument, well, it would have been great if I could have changed my friend's mind in that moment. That wasn't my end goal, and it would have been just a kind of a side effect or a cool outcome. But I wasn't, and I hoped for it, obviously, but I wasn't expecting it. Rather, I was expecting for the opportunity for me to be respectful and kind, but to also affirm people who were damaged by his viewpoints and by his projection of his own personal struggles regarding music and his relationship with God onto the rest of the Christian church. That was reality. And so always keep the neutral observer in mind. And ask yourself as you're responding to someone, whether it's someone you're close to or not, if what you're saying would be acceptable, would be affirm, you know, would be something that could be affirmed by a neutral observer who doesn't know you and doesn't know anything about your connection to the person that you're arguing with. That's why a lot of times I'll make an inside joke on in a comment and then immediately say, for anyone else, just so you know, we're really good friends and this is an inside joke that we've had for years or whatever. So always remember the neutral observer. 
Anyway, I hope that all of these were these tips were were helpful to you. I hope that this is something that can impact your own conversations that you're having with people. And I hope from here you have a solid direction to move into. Um, and I hope that you and your group of friends will become more accepting and provide a safe alternative for the people that you talk to. After all, that's what our churches were supposed to be to begin with, if you're someone who still does identify as a Christian. Our churches were supposed to be the safe alternative that allowed for someone to come in one way and safely change and, and transform out of that way into the new life in Christ. And they would be welcomed by this community that loves them, that cares for them, and that sees them as more than the problems that they walked in the door with. So with that, thank you for listening to this week's Absurdity, and we will see you next time.